Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Emily Jane Fox is out this week, but you should go back and listen to her interview of last week if you didn't hear it. It was an amazing portrait of a photographer uh, who took pictures of her family who were all very deeply involved in the Trump uh, world. And she documented uh, what it was like to live in a family of Trumpers, books called Family Matters. It was in the last episode. You should check it out. It's a really great interview. And it reminded me that uh, I'm going to just start off saying that I am from Texas, I mentioned that semi-periodically on this podcast, and everybody's been turning to me at the staff of Vanity Fair and all the people I know in the New York area where I live now. What's going on with Texas? What is wrong with Texas? Texas, and I, I try to defend it. I say, I oh, listen, it's not so bad. I came from there. How bad can it be, right? Uh, but it is a wonderful state. I love it there, um, but it's certainly problematic in all kinds of ways, certainly politically. And what we're seeing down there right now at the border is something that is very alarming and distressing, uh, incredibly uh, emotional and um, hard to watch. And so, uh, but I like to bring on other friends and people I I know from Texas onto this podcast. We've had Beto O'Rourke. We've, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the abortion bill and we brought on some, some fine Texas minds to talk about that. And this week, we're going to talk to uh, Julian Castro former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development of the uh, Obama administration, former mayor of San Antonio, Texas. And of course, last year he was a presidential candidate. Secretary Castro, welcome to Inside the Hive. Hey, great to be with you, Joe. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for making the time. I can't think of a better person to talk to about what's going on in Texas right now. As a Texan of Mexican descent, you know, you've made your immigration reform ideas sort of part of your political profile. You were the first candidate last year among the Democrats to put out a comprehensive immigration plan. So you've got specific ideas. So the first thing I want to ask you is right off the top, we have a senior American diplomat who just resigned, calling what is going on at the border inhumane, counterproductive. We're deporting thousands of Haitian refugees and immigrants back to Haiti, which is just this disaster after an earthquake, um, after a political assassination. Uh, the diplomat's name is Daniel Foote. Secretary Castro, is he right? I agree with a lot of what he said. Yeah. Um, there's no reason that uh, Haitian asylum seekers at the border should be treated with cruelty, uh, should be lashed with horse reins. And the larger point that he also made was that We're deporting thousands and thousands of Haitians back to a country that has been shattered by natural disasters, by political turmoil, by gang violence, by deep poverty and desperation. It doesn't make any sense. And I agree with uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer as well. It's that this does not make common sense. So, yeah, I I absolutely agree with with the spirit of what he said. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was watching it, Men on horseback for the border patrol, corralling, running down immigrants in the, in these valleys here. I mean, it's it, it's shocking and horrible. I thought to myself, "Wow, if this was happening under the Trump administration, okay, that'd be one thing. We we would we expect him to be racist and anti-immigrant, right? We'd be rightfully outraged, and uh, maybe because Biden is an adult in our political room now." Uh, some people might want to give him a pass, but should we? I mean, 
Should we be giving this administration a pass on what's happening? No, I don't think we should give uh, the president or anybody, Democrat or Republican, a pass. Now, look, we have to acknowledge that Joe Biden is not Donald Trump. Donald Trump had a dark heart when it comes to migrants, uh, people seeking a better life in the United States. I don't think Joe Biden, you know, I think he's a good man. I, I don't think he wants to inflict or wants anybody to inflict cruelty on uh, these migrants. At the same time, Donald Trump's policies too often are becoming the default policies of the Biden administration, and specifically Title 42. Title 42 is, is a new device or being used newly in this way, basically for the federal government to summarily expel, uh, deport people seeking asylum under the, the uh, guise of public health. Uh, because we're going through a pandemic. At first blush, people hear that and say, well, you know, I mean, you know, we are going through a pandemic. You know, that makes sense. Keep them out. But it doesn't follow the science. When this was put in place during the Trump administration, the CDC did not want to recommend the use of Title 42. They resisted it. They were forced to do it. And today... There are so many other ways that we could make sure that anybody who comes into the country, that uh, it's safe for them to be here. A lot of that is already being done. Testing for COVID, vaccinations against COVID, uh, quarantining people. So on both of those counts, um, that, you know, that we don't need it under the science. And secondly, uh, that really, this was a Trump-era policy that had never been used before like this, or at least not in a long time, that doesn't belong in the Biden administration that said it was going to be about common sense and compassion and not cruelty. Uh, my hope is that the Biden administration is going to reverse course on this very soon. And I'm happy to see that from Majority Leader Schumer to Senator uh, Hirono to a number of others, the push to do that is growing. Yeah. I, I was thinking about, um, I went back and looked at some of the debate clips, the presidential debate clips, because you were really strong in those debates when it came to the immigration issue. And I remember you really went head to head with Biden on this. And one of the things I remember him saying, he said, people should have to get in line. That's the problem. He, he was like, we can't have a complete open border policy, which he was sort of accusing you of having. But and then you guys got into it about what had happened under the Obama administration. But you said one of us has learned the lessons of the past and one of us hasn't. What we need is somebody who has the guts on this issue. Given what's happening today and where we are, what does that mean? What, what should be happening right now? Well, number one, we need to start by understanding that in the United States, we live in a neighborhood. We don't live on an island. We live in a neighborhood. So we've seen these kinds of surges in the number of migrants at our border, regardless of whether there's a Republican president, we saw it under Trump, or a Democratic president, we saw it under Obama, now we're seeing it under Biden. All of that is influenced by what's going on with our neighbors. We need to be prepared for that. We need to do things in the short term and in the long term. In the long term, probably the most promising work that's being done is by Vice President Harris working with those Northern Triangle countries so that people can find safety and opportunity at home instead of having to come and seek it in the United States. Jobs, uh, safety, 
public health, all of those things that, that people need to find in their home country so that they'll stay there. And people will stay there. You know, nobody likes to just pick up and have to move from the place that they, you know, were born, grew up, um, if they have a good life, a decent life, and they have opportunity. We should be doing that kind of work in a respectful, mutually agreeable and beneficial way with Haiti as well. In the short term, what we need to do is have immigration policy that is based on common sense and also compassion. And by that, I mean, we need to increase the number of refugees that we're taking in. We need to uh, increase the number of people seeking asylum that are actually getting their hearings. Right now, we have a tremendous backlog in our court system. Um, we need to ensure that people who are in the United States, especially these kids, are able to get into the hands of loving families that oftentimes are already here while they await their court process. And as a democratic party, we need to push back against this narrative that, that these immigrants are just bad, that they have disease, uh, that they're a drag on our economy, uh, that somehow this is part of a great replacement that you hear Tucker Carlson and others making that argument every night on Fox News. We need to make the positive, constructive case for our immigration policy and not be afraid of it. And right now, I don't hear either President Biden or the administration really making that case. I don't doubt that President Biden understands some of the adjustments that we need to make or should have made from, from you know 12 years ago. But so far... I think their prevailing sort of modus operandi has been, we're not Trump. Right. We're not Donald Trump. Right. Well, that's problematic because when it comes to Title 42, they are implementing Donald Trump's policy. And not only that, hey, we don't elect people to just not be Donald Trump. That's not the standard for an American president. If we start measuring ourselves by simply, you're not Donald Trump, we're going to have drug the standard of presidential leadership yeah. uh, so far down that, you know, this country is going to go to hell in a handbasket uh, in short order. That's not what we want. We want a president who will stand up for those right values, even when it's tough to do that. Uh, and in a lot of ways, Joe Biden is. But when it comes to this particular area, so far, they've fallen short. Yeah. It's interesting. I just was trying to do a little look around on what is the GOP reaction to the Haitian border crisis. And you've got this diplomat who's ostensibly in the Biden administration. He was in the Biden administration just saying, hey, this is cruel and unjust. And I quit. And on the other hand, you've got Governor Greg Abbott saying, oh, it's the open border policy that is the problem. And so Biden's right kind of stuck betwixt and between here. Um, and it seems like the only solution is to have a clear policy and to get something implemented and to sell it. I mean, he's got to work on it. I mean, I look, I feel for the president and the administration on the politics of this. Nobody's pretending 
that the issue of immigration is not a touchy one, a kind of third rail. Uh, uh, when you take one step forward, you're subject to a real backlash when it comes to allowing opportunity for people to make their asylum claims or treating uh, migrants humanely. There are a lot of people in this country who don't agree with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, in our country, you know, and these are two separate things because I don't think that everybody that's against the policies that I put forward is xenophobic, you know, but there is still a decent amount of xenophobia yeah. out there. And yeah. so the president, the administration is stuck, like you describe, but the best way to, to combat that, to push back against it is not to, to kind of cower and not say anything. You know, he hasn't said anything so far, clearly in the last few days since those images of the the Haitian immigrants at the border came out, it's to make your positive case, you know, so that the American people can see that positive, constructive immigration policy, the vision for it. Mm -hmm. Until you do that, you're going to be playing the game of these GOP fear mongers. Yeah. And you're never going to win at that. Right. Um, we should have, you know, and that's that was part of the debate conversation. And I think that we should have learned that lesson in addition to a number of others 12 years ago. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So... I mentioned at the top of this uh, podcast that I'm from Texas. I grew up there, and you know, mm-hmm. um, growing up there, as we're roughly the same age, you and I, there's always, you know, you talk about xenophobia. There was a lot of racism towards Mexican Americans when I was growing up. I had like a a high school history teacher who was really just the football coach, which is one of those things in Texas, uh, who you know tried <laughs> to get me to sign a uh, you know petition to make English the only you know, the first mm. language, and it was all this sort of racist backhand stuff, and and that's the side of Texas that you know who who would like that, but and there's a lot of great things about Texas. Want to say that as the right off the bat, but you've got a, a podcast yourself, um, Our America. Is that what it's called, right? Yeah, Our America. Right. And uh, you recently had an episode. It was about the abortion bill that was just passed, but it was called WTF is Happening in Texas. You know, and <laughs> you were you know, talking about the abortion bill, but we can more broadly ask that question. We've got this, you've got this voting restriction bill they passed. They've got this gun permit thing where it lets you, allows you to carry a gun around without a permit. Um, the abortion bill. Uh, what is, what, what the fuck is happening with Texas? <laughs> that is a question on the minds of a lot of people out there these yeah. days, because it seems like Texas is at the center of the domestic news universe for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, and you named some of them uh, a moment ago. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, it's fitting that Texas is in this situation because a lot of the turmoil that we've seen politically, the rise of Donald Trump, 
the xenophobia that we're feeling again in spades, a lot of that is due to a changing America, right? America is changing in different ways. Uh, obviously, demographically, it's changed economically over the last couple of decades. And Texas is where so much of that is happening. And it's a microcosm in many ways for the rest of the nation when it comes to those types of changes. The census that came out a few weeks ago for 2020 showed that 95% of the growth in Texas was people of color. It said that Hispanics and non-Hispanic whites are now basically even at about 39.5% each of the state. The Asian American community is growing. The African American community is growing. And, and at the same time, it's a state that has been fully in control by Republicans for two decades. And there's a lot of pressure that is growing and a gap that is growing between that leadership that's far right, that's Trumpist, and the reality of this state that is more and more, you know, people of color and folks that have moved in from other states. It's an economy that is not just a 20th century economy, it's 21st century economy. Think about all the, you know, Apple is about to become the largest private sector employer in the state. So many other companies like that have made investments in Austin and in other places. So there's this growing divide and this, this growing tension about who we were, who we are, and who we're going to be. And that speaks to the anxiety that I think is, is uh, driving American politics these days. Well, yeah, that reminds me of this quote from uh, Lawrence Wright or his comment that Texas is the future of America and, and it's the bellwether, yeah. right? This collision course between the kind of plural demographics you're mentioning and this entrenched hard right politics that's uh, you know pushing back against that and building its entire political identity out of pushing back against that, right? Um, and they're using you know the state houses to do it uh, as and Texas is – basically the blueprint, and we're going to see this happening in elsewhere in Florida and other states. But, you know, the, but the idea is basically they're using a shrinking population, um, and they're, you know, in often cases, the minority, um, you know, but, but able to wield power from a minority position by being, you know, using populist politics of the kind that Trump has shown people how to use. You know, I, and this is a big question. And uh, nobody knows the answer, and there's lots of different answers to it. But how do you, you know, on the Texas level, right, if it's the blueprint, how do you fight back? How do Democrats fight back against the gerrymandering, against the all these, you know, the lockhold that the Republicans seem to have there? I mean, what is there a plan, and who's the leader? Yeah. Well, you know, there we have some fantastic leadership uh, in the Texas Democratic Caucus here in the State House, and you have a lot of talented leaders across the state. I think of people like Lena Hidalgo, the county judge of Harris County, uh, Clay Jenkins in Dallas County, uh, mayors like Mayor Adler in Austin and Mayor Nuremberg in San Antonio, and also uh, folks like former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, um, who, who has maintained a strong voice in the state. So we have a lot of talent. I think that that coordination on a vision and the organizing and uh, the push to change not only these policies, but the direction of the state, that's a work in progress. I mean, on the, on the bright side, 
There are organizations like the Texas Organizing Project and a couple of others that have grown in number and stature over the last couple of election cycles that are helping to win elections and move things in the right direction. Uh, but, you know, so far, the resources have not been dedicated, I think, to accelerate the progress toward a democratic Texas. And that needs to happen, you know, because if folks invested in turning Texas around the way that people once invested in turning California around in the 1990s, or Georgia more recently, or Arizona, then this state would undergo a transformation within the next one to two election cycles that would mean, you know, 40 electoral votes now uh, in Democratic presidential contests. It would mean a safer margin in the House of Representatives, Senate seats, and so forth. That can happen. It is going to happen. But but the question is, at what pace? Yeah. And there's still a lot of work to do to accelerate that pace. Yeah. Well, when you have this voter restriction bill, for instance, right, they're trying to suppress the the vote in Harris County, now that you mentioned it, in the, in the metropolitan areas where they're going to try to keep the minority vote down to benefit their political aspirations. Well, how do you fight against that? And who is fighting against it? What are, what are you going to do when 2022 20, rolls around and Beto O'Rourke's your nominee or whatever? You know, you're going to, organization is going to be the game. Well, we got a lot of leaders uh, in the state house that have stood up. They broke quorum at the end of the regular session. They broke it again. Uh, in two special sessions, there, you know, eventually that voting rights, uh, voting voter suppression legislation passed the state house. Maybe one of the best ways to fight it right now is actually in the courts, and those lawsuits certainly have been filed. Um, same with SB eight, the anti-abortion legislation. There's pushback in the courts. There. In the meantime, we need to do what successful campaigns and endeavors have always done in our democracy. We need to organize, organize, organize. And we also need to see Washington pass voting rights legislation for the 21st century that will wipe out uh, these counterproductive voter suppression efforts in places like Texas and Georgia and other states. You know, I'm encouraged that perhaps there's some movement to do that now, uh, a compromise piece of legislation that would be helpful that Senator Manchin can support. But we're going to need to set aside the filibuster to do it because I don't think he's going to find 10 Republicans to get to the 60 votes that uh, they would need in the Senate without setting aside the filibuster. So it's going to take, take the federal level, it's going to take leaders at the state level, and it's going to take organizing on the ground in local communities. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about Beto O'Rourke. Um, as some people listening to this may know. I profiled him a couple of years ago. He, if nothing else, the guy had an organization. And he was obviously a young firebrand. He didn't win the, the Senate election against the odious toad Ted Cruz. But um, when I get around the table with my other editors and reporters at Vanity Fair, there's a little skepticism about Beto. He's run a couple of times. He's all ambition and organization. And he's an eloquent and very earnest and straightforward guy. And I appreciated that about him. But, uh, you know, some people see him just tilting at windmills here. But he also, is that organization still there? Can he win in 2022? I mean, what if he were to run? 
Well, I think he is uh, very impressive. You know, obviously, I uh, supported him in 2018 when he ran against Ted Cruz. He and I ran uh, against each other in the presidential race, and so I had the chance to see him in that light also. And and you guys crossed um, swords a couple times there, I, I remember. Yeah, we did, you know, but we've maintained a friendship. Uh, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago uh, about what he was thinking in terms of 2022. And so I think he's impressive. He has raised more money than any Texas candidate in a very long time, and probably maybe more than anybody ever. So he knows how to fundraise. He knows how to get the base excited, which is important, especially in a midterm election, where usually, as you know, the incumbent uh, president's party is at an enthusiasm gap, has an enthusiasm disadvantage. Um, and he knows the issues. He's able to... to talk about these issues in a compelling way. I believe that he has a shot to beat Greg Abbott. I'm also not convinced that Greg Abbott is going to be the nominee hmm. of the Republicans, which I think would actually provide quite an opportunity if he's not, because the alternatives, Alan West and Don Huffines, are even further to the right. And I think a harder sell for Texas voters who aren't in the mood right now, you know, more and more are not in the mood for all ideology and no competence, which is what Greg Abbott has offered and which is what Alan West or Don Huffines would likely offer. So what I'm watching for is, uh, you know, on, on, on Beto's part, you know, assuming he gets into the race, you know, how, how fast he gets off the ground doing that organizing. He did a great job in 2018 of getting to all 254 counties and organizing there. Uh, and, and it just picked up like a, you know, the, the snowball running down the, yeah. the mountain, you know, and can he get that effect going? Uh, and, and then on the other side of it, I'm watching to see for signs of life uh, for Alan West and Don Huffines. Yesterday, Tucker Carlson uh, said on his show that he had invited on multiple occasions, Governor Greg Abbott to go on and talk about why he's not being stronger uh, on keeping people out of the country. You know, now this is all from the Republican side, sure. but Abbott didn't want to appear, I guess, you know, was scared of appearing, according to Tucker Carlson, on his show. And so he's invited uh, West and Huffines onto his show. Abbott has to be very careful about how much oxygen they get, because even though, you know, the poll that just came out from University of Texas Tyler had him beating these folks by 50 points or something. Conservatives do not love Greg Abbott. They think of him more, I think, as a finger in the wind politician, that he'll do what he has to do to sort of appease them, but he's not really there down with the cause. So there's a distrust there. If they can exploit that, then I think that they can start to, probably Alan West, start to climb against Abbott. There's also a mechanical issue that's going to repeat itself from the 2012 election. Um, in 2012, uh, when Ted Cruz, who was a nobody back then in politics, he you know had never run before, people did not know who he was. He beat uh, the lieutenant governor David Dewhurst for Senate, and part of the reason that he beat him, in addition to you know outflanking him on the right, was that he got extra time because redistricting took longer to do. We got tied up in court, I think. They moved the March primary back to May. Well, that looks like it may well happen again in Texas, giving West and Huffines more time mm. to catch up to Greg Abbott. If one of those guys gets him into a runoff, I think it's over. 
And I think that Greg Abbott loses that primary. If you get Beto running against, if you get Beto and Abbott, I think it's still a competitive race and Beto could win. If you get Beto and West or Huffines, then I think the chances for him to win go up significantly. That is a fascinating analysis. I'm really interested in, in thinking that through. I hadn't thought about the other nominees in the in the Republican side, um, and it it makes me shudder to think how Abbott will, what he'll start saying, in order to out uh, <laughs> Trump the uh, his yeah. his competitors. You can only imagine how noisy and and uh, ridiculous that's going to get. No, absolutely. Well, and all of us, uh, you know, all Texans are kind of held hostage, unfortunately, to him putting his politics over everything else, over the public health by not allowing schools to require the wearing of masks among their students, faculty and staff, above equality um, by going after the transgender community and supporting things like this bogus critical race theory legislation um, hurting our economy uh, now that companies are saying that you know they'll support employees who want to move out of Texas after this uh, abortion ban passed. So on all of those counts, we're suffering through a governor who is really governing only for the perceived benefit of a small minority of people who vote in a Republican primary, and that's not the way that it should be. Right, but that's you know. That's the Trump model, right? Is uh, you don't even worry about the center. The center doesn't exist anymore. You just, uh, if you get enough passion going on the right, and that's what's so interesting about these other nominees you mentioned, is they are in the business, <laughs> right, of just inflaming the base with the most radical and paranoid and bizarre views. Well, and both of them have a history of being able to defeat others by doing that, you know, particularly Huffines, who came from the right and beat, uh, I believe, an incumbent state senator when he won a few years ago. And then Alan West is, I mean, as bombastic yeah. as they come. Yeah. And, you know, Abbott is in a bad spot either way, because on the one hand, if he goes to the right, both in his actions and his, his uh, words, which he's doing, he leaves more of the playing field open in the general election of 2022, this time with a record of failure and incompetence to add to it. And if he doesn't go to the right, then he's giving more oxygen and playing field on his right in the primary for a March or May 22 uh, election that he, you know, stands a greater chance of losing because he didn't go to the right. Yeah. So if you're in his, you know, you're in his political organization right now, the more that Trump does things like he did today, send an open letter challenging Greg Abbott to put an election, a Texas election audit of November 2020 election on the special session that's going on right now, the worse it gets for Greg Abbott because yeah. it forces him to choose between those two you know, options. He doesn't want to have to do that. His whole political career as governor and before that was made on being able to play the turtle and hide when he could, when he had to, so that he would, you know, so that people couldn't really measure him. Uh, and he maintained this sort of bipartisan appeal or enough of it to get by. That's yeah. gone now. 
Yeah, yeah. And if you look at what just happened with the California recall, the lesson that we've pulled from the Gavin Newsom attempted recall, you know, it was that uh, when you get the 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 Trumpier they get, uh, it's actually an opportunity for the Democratic uh, side. And in that case, in the Texas analogy, that would be Beto, if possibly if he's if he indeed is going to run, right? Uh, what about uh, now? This is just a wild card, and I have to ask you this because we're Vanity Fair and we're concerned with uh, famous Hollywood actors. But uh, Matthew McConaughey uh, may also run. Do you know him? You ever met him? I don't think I no. I haven't met him. I was trying to rack my brain to make sure. <laughs> I, I don't think I've met him. No. Uh, I mean, you know, to his credit. Um, in Texas, I don't think he's seen as Hollywood. Uh, he's done a good job. You know, I imagine, you know, genuinely. I mean, he's from Texas. I think he's from Uvalde, Texas. He lives in Austin. He's been affiliated with UT, which I think is his alma mater. So, you know, to his credit, it, that part doesn't seem phony or inauthentic, right? People think of him, they think of him as Texan. Um, he certainly has that credential. Uh, I think his challenge is that he also hasn't particularly been involved in uh, issues related to the public interest uh, right. and certainly not politics. And after the failures of Trump and the incompetence of Abbott, I do think that more Texans are looking for somebody they see as knowledgeable and competent and that they could actually step in there and do a good job as the chief executive of the state of Texas. That's somewhere, that's, that's an area that you know, he's he not bringing much to the table in, uh, or if anything, you know, on the other hand, we have seen celebrity win out in the past, um, right. whether it was Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump or Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, or a few others. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly think of him as authentic. Uh, I, I, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of him is uh, naked playing bongos in the garage when the police showed up <laughs> and he was stoned. I, you know, can we take a flyer on that? Maybe. We'll see. Um, let me just uh, ask you a big picture question here. Uh, you know, um, Joe Biden, polls are showing that his support has fallen a little bit uh, or, or quite a bit, down to 43 percent, according to this latest poll. Uh, the Afghanistan kind of uh, problem was, I don't think anybody would disagree that it was terrible um, in all, in the way it happened. And he's going to maybe pay a political cost for it and maybe already is starting to. And we're on the knife's edge with this social safety net bill, the infrastructure bill, and uh, and now this border crisis. You know, Things change very fast in this political world we're living in, as you know. But um, how would you grade him right now, his political standing? And what's your assessment of his relative strength and weakness right now? Well, I mean, I give him high marks for accomplishing the things that are most on the minds of a lot of Americans. Uh, they want to know that they're uh, safer from the coronavirus now than when he took over. All of those shots in people's arms um, you know, the response to the pandemic that has been light years ahead of the response from the Trump administration, uh, a focus on the economy, you know, a, a strengthening economy and the, invest, the investment of the American Rescue Plan, you know, basically getting down the business of putting people back to work, um, getting small businesses back up and running. Also, uh, the child uh, tax credit uh, checks that people have been receiving, all of that, I think, gets high marks. And is are things that we need to do, uh, given where we've been. Uh, 
I, I also believe that there's a lot of unfinished business that I think uh, the grade I would give is incomplete, whether we're talking about uh, voting rights, which so many of us recognize uh, is fundamental to preserving the kind of democracy that we want in this country and need when the Republicans have a blueprint based on this big lie of Trump to unravel it. Police reform that seems like it just fell apart, these conversations between, uh, negotiation between Senator Booker and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, immigration reform, uh, which looks like it, you know, may not get into the reconciliation budget because of the ruling of the Senate parliamentarian, even though leadership in the Senate is continuing to work on that, um, and, and, you know, a few other issues. So there's a lot of incomplete right now. Every president goes through a rocky road. I don't think there's been a president out there that doesn't have, you know, uh, these rocky times. The question is, what do you do when you get to them? And so this period that we're going through, or the period that Joe Biden is going through, is going to be a real test of his leadership ability. Mm -hmm. What he did yesterday, getting those Democrats in the same room, trying to help negotiate uh, a compromise on this reconciliation package... He needs to keep doing it. You know, he needs to get caught trying and and do it until we are able to deliver results. Uh, and if for some reason it doesn't happen, you know, for his political sake, pe people best believe, you know, they better believe that he did every single thing that he could to get it done. It's that use of political muscle that I think, you know, on several of these incomplete issues has been somewhat missing from mm -hmm. the administration. Well, to, and he needs to change that. To bring Texas back into it, we need the Lyndon Johnson horse trader to get involved here. And we, <laughs> we need to see that side of him. You know, we need to see him pushing Manchin and cinema around a little bit. I mean, the fact that the uh, party is at their, you know, beck and call now uh, is unbelievable. The fact that the Democrats have both, you know, have the Congress and the executive branch, it's just they should be you know, running, racing with this stuff. And instead they have these, you know, this blockade in their own party. I mean, as you know, Joe, yeah, these Republicans don't hesitate for a second to be as extreme as they want to be when they have the majority for the benefit of, of huge corporations and the super wealthy and folks that are already doing very well. Well, we shouldn't, you know, we should unabashedly try and help the middle class and lower income individuals and make sure that we build a nation where everyone counts and go as hard as we can at that, um, you know, not, uh, you don't, uh, Trump abused power to try and get what he wanted. You don't, you never want to abuse power, but use your power, you know, recognize it and use it as much as you can for good purposes. And right now it's like, you know, we're on a, 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 a roadway, a speedway where we could go, you know, 80 miles an hour and we're, we're running at like 60 is what it feels like. So if you could get in a room right now with uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and just tell them something, you know, here we are at the crossroads where we can be, uh, you know, the party that you're ostensibly in could be successful and come out the other side uh, winners in 2022 if you can just get this through. I mean, what would you tell them? Well, you know, I would, I would talk to them or better yet, bring into the room mothers of these children 
who are going to benefit from child tax credits or the investment that we're making in education uh, or other concrete investments that we're going to make for people in their states, mm -hmm. not in other places, in West Virginia, where you have a high poverty rate, or in Arizona that is changing like Texas and needs a lot of these investments. And also talk to them the way that Barack Obama talked to those Democrats on Capitol Hill the day before they were going to vote on the health care bill. That this is way beyond, you know, your political career. This is about what we can do for people who have been waiting for change and needed in their lives so desperately. And you can make that difference. And that's probably why you got into it in the first place. And now you actually have an opportunity to do it. And, you know, of course, it's, it's uh, never an easy sell, but the sell needs to be made and it needs to be made hard yeah. and it needs to be made over and over. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listening to you now, I'm very inspired, Julian Castro, and um, wondering when we're going to see you running for something and what it's going to be. <laughs> well, you know, you probably haven't heard the last of me in politics, but for right now, I'm, uh, I'm perfectly content to support people who are running. You know, we have the PAC People First Future to support great candidates and progressive causes. I, I'm going to continue to use my voice and platform any way that I can uh, to be in the fight. And the good news is that here in Texas, uh, I'm confident that we're going to have a great group of folks that run in 2022. Uh, including, it looks like, Beth O'Rourke. And I'll be there and be helpful. And then at some point in the future, uh, jump back in. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to that day. And there's a lot of a lot of dramatic things are going to be unfolding over the next several months and the next year. And uh, we'd love to have you back to uh, see where we're at at the next uh, turn in the road. But thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It's, I'm grateful and it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot, Joe. Great to be with you. And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Julian Castro, for coming on Inside the Hive this week. Thanks to our executive producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this happen. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. Come back next week. We're going to have more and more great guests and interviews. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.